All right. Well, good morning. I, I usually don't talk about sports in the pulpit that much, but um, I had football withdrawal yesterday. I don't know if anybody had football withdrawal, but uh, it's winding down. And I'm just saying that because um, we're, uh, my wife and I are trying to obey Scripture. Scripture says that elders should be hospitable. And so we want to be hospitable. We are opening up our home uh, to anyone that wants to come watch the Super Bowl with us next Sunday at 6. And the only thing that we ask is that you bring something uh, tasty to eat. It may be a little crowded, you know, in our space there. But um, if you would like to, we posted it on our Facebook page, which I encourage you to follow that and uh, have invited folks. But just keep it in mind, you are welcome to come to our home and watch the Super Bowl with us. And I really don't care who wins. My team is not in uh, that game, but it will be fun. I'll, we'll just have a good time together. And I like um, spinach dip. I like the sliders that Miss Judy's going to make probably and bring. <laughs> now, just bring something good that other people can enjoy. We're going to uh, provide some uh, some things ourselves and some drinks. But if you'd like to come, please, please uh, consider this an invitation from us. If you don't uh, have the information about how to get to our house, we live like 10 minutes from here, and we will gladly provide uh, that information to you. I'll just tell you, park along the curb, you know, in our neighborhood, and not on anybody's grass, especially not mine. But uh, but we'll make plenty of room for everybody and look forward to that. And uh, turn with me, if you would, then to Acts chapter number 9. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts. And we're going to continue there in Acts chapter 9 with verse 23. And we believe that the Bible is God's word, that it's been given to us and it is inspired by him so that we can have an account of his heart for us. And uh, in the book of Acts, we see the early church and how that they responded to the fact that Jesus Christ was resurrected and alive. And um, so turn with me there, Acts chapter number 9, beginning with verse number 23. And there the scripture says, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. And, of course, the him there is Saul of Tarsus, who we uh, considered last week as well. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he, he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenist. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Father, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for this uh, reality that we see in the life of these followers of you. And we pray that as we think about this passage today, that you'll challenge us, God, about our own uh, followership, our discipleship, and how we uh, relate to you and to the world around us. And God, I pray that you help us to be courageous and help us to have 
within us this same desire to be passionate witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, and we pray this in his name, amen. Well, the first century church, as we've seen, was born in a context of violent opposition, and to be a Christian in those days was to face the possibility of physical threat and loss of family and employment. We know that there had occurred previous to this a persecution that caused people to have to move and leave Jerusalem, and we saw how God used that to scatter Christians among the early ancient world so that the people who were uh, scattered took with them this gospel proclamation, the message of the good news of Jesus everywhere that they were going in the ancient world. And so that persecution ended up serving the purpose that God intended and it got the people, like we said, out of the salt shaker and into the world. You know, they were salt in the world as Jesus had commanded that they would go to be witnesses for him. And then we see here how Saul, last week we saw his conversion, that as he went along the road to Damascus to persecute Christians himself, had been uh, going there so that he could have Christians arrested and even killed at times we saw as Stephen was martyred, that along the road he encounters Jesus and he hears him say to him, why are you persecuting me? And he experiences Jesus and he experiences a radical transformation in his own life. And he turns to Jesus by faith and is baptized and then in Damascus preaches the gospel. Well, when you read uh, commentaries about what's happening now, some people speculate that a long period of time, perhaps a year or more, had passed between when he leaves Damascus and he goes to a region called Arabia, before he returned to Jerusalem, which occurs in this story. And when he goes to Jerusalem, the people there are understandably reluctant to admit him to their fellowship. Because even though they knew, perhaps some of them did the story, still they're not quite sure how to receive Saul. Maybe he's a plant sent among them like a mole to infiltrate them and to uh, destroy the movement from inside. That might have been what some of them thought about Saul's motives. They didn't know his motive. They thought maybe he's here to prey on our naive Christian uh, fellowship and to destroy us. And so that we, we can understand why when you read this story, they were hesitant at first to admit Saul into the church there and to give him a place among the apostles. And when I read this story, I'm, I was thinking this narrative that we fa- find here. What's the application to us? You know, what do we take away from this ourselves? And I think our threats are different than theirs. We have threats, but they're not the same as they would have experienced in the first century. We're here in the West now, the modern, modernized West. In a post-Christian world, people describe it. It is post-Christian in the sense that we're affected by Christianity now. It, 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 the fruit of Christianity is everywhere, but more and more our society is severed from the root of Christianity. So we don't know how we got here. We have this convenient sort of spiritual amnesia. And so it's why churches are struggling in the times that we are currently in at times and in different places. And so I think our challenges are different. We're faced with the challenge of complacency, for one thing. What threatened them was not complacency. They were passionate, right? 
They took the gospel everywhere, and they were bold. And we see that word used several times in the passage that we read today. But for us, uh, we're, our challenges are a little different. Someone described uh, that as, like for Westerners, as affluenza. Have you ever heard that? Affluenza. It's like materialism, overconsumption, relative safety, which we do experience because we're in a country that has, uh, is founded on the principle of religious liberty, and we other first world problems, we call them, right? We talk about things that we have, and most of the time that's really what they are. And if you've done much traveling, you realize that, that this country is incredibly blessed, but along with that blessing sometimes goes this uh, tendency toward indifference, complacency, faith, uh, because freedom... Uh, of religion for many people becomes freedom from religion. You know, we, we disconnect. We don't take seriously who Christ is and what his claims are. And it becomes a fertile soil for indifference. We think about Westerners. You know, it used to be that in, in the past the seeker uh, church could organize around felt needs, but people don't really have felt needs anymore in the West. They're not apparent anyway. Everybody will bring anything that you want to your door. Like I went to Zaxby's to have lunch with a couple of pastor friends this week, and you almost can't even eat at Zaxby's because when you go there, they're preparing uh, DoorDash stuff for people. So you order eventually, but you have to wait for them to because everybody is just having their food sent to them. And I'm not against that. I'm just saying the world we live in, You don't have felt needs. People will bring you groceries to your door. You don't have to leave home if you don't want to. They'll bring you liquor to your house. There's a uh, group called Drizzly and probably who knows how many others. You know, so we don't have felt needs as such. I read recently that one in six Americans take psychotropic drugs. We don't even have to wrestle with angst if we don't want to. We don't have to interact with pain or learn how to deal with adult problems if we choose not to. While religious liberty is a blessing, along with it comes this threat to those of us who would follow Jesus, the idea of indifference and the idea of complacency. Consumer cultures taught us that expectations in the religious context are one way. You know, I've posted about this several times lately, the idea that, you know, the, consu- to, the idea of co- consumer mentalities that it re- applies to church it undermines really the effectiveness and the idea of what Christian community is. Christian community is simply that. You know, it's connection among human beings. The church isn't a product that we consume. The church is a community, a family to which we belong and where we serve and where we know people and are known by people. But if we, you know, have this concept about church, well, it's a product that we consume, then it becomes that the consumer drives that and everything is about meeting needs. And like I said recently, too, it's a moving target and it's a low, a low bar for us to try to hit. Not helpful. We end up asking, what can you do for me? And what, in the process, what's lost are suffering, sacrifice, submission, they don't even, they're not even in our spiritual vocabulary anymore. It's what can you do for me? 
It's unfair to ask expectations of me. What I want to know is what you can do for me. When in reality, when you watch the early church, what was true about them is that they were willing to suffer. Those words were part of their their spiritual vocabulary. They were willing to sacrifice. It was part of their personality and their identity. They were willing to submit because above everything was the desire that they had to glorify God and to forward the gospel into the dark places in the world where hope needed to be discovered. Westerners have so many options that if we're not careful, we will begin to treat God like just another option. So many choices, so many things that are readily available that if we're not careful, we begin to think about our faith that way too. God's just another option. If God's another option, we can take him or leave him. Spiritual community will you know, move further and further off the radar for us. We, we will balk at the idea that our faith has implications and will be costly and consequently we won't be biblical Christians. That's the threat. We think about what was the threat for them. The threat for them was physical, obvious. Sometimes it carried spears, right? Sometimes it carried swords. It was obvious. The threat for you and the threat for me is a lot more subtle. But it's still real. And and so when I thought about this passage this week, what I see is that it's hard work to be a biblical Christian, and, but for a different reality or reason for us. It's harder for us for a different reason than it was for them. But it's still hard work. And so I want us to think about that hard work from two examples that we can see in the passage. And the first one is Saul's example, his, his, his experience, part one. Two parts of the story. Most of it is in the first several verses and then... The second part of it is just in verse 31. But in Saul's experience, he begins to live what you remember if you were here or just a reading through Acts in chapter 9 before, Saul is told by Ananias, Ananias is sent to him and he's fearful, but he goes in obedience to Jesus and he tells Saul what God has told him, which is you are going to suffer for my name's sake. He says, I'm going to tell you all the things that you're going to suffer for my name's sake. You're going to go and you're going to testify before kings, and he does over and over again until he gets to Rome. And we believe Caesar stands before Caesar because that's the appeal that he made. But, but that's the message Ananias tells him, you will suffer for my name's sake, and then what happens? He begins to suffer immediately. He preaches the gospel. And because he does that, he attracts persecution. The, pers- the persecutor becomes persecuted, we see in the, in the passage from before, from last week. The gospel message evoked violent pushback, and it's satanic. And always is. John 10.10 10 says that the thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. He is a thief. He's a murderer. The Bible says he's the father of lies. And there is a real satanic reason behind the persecution. Even if the persecutors don't know it themselves. They may not even know it. They may not know the motivation, but that's the motivation. 
It's that there's a spirit of disobedience that currently works among the sons of disobedience. He opposes God's purposes in the world. And so when Paul steps onto this other side and he becomes part of the hopeful narrative of gospel redemption, what he experiences is satanic opposition. R.C. Sproul, a preacher, commentator, pointed out that religion is a deadly imposter. And the reason that he attracts this opposition is comes from the religious quarter primarily. And, he, and Sproul says, God hates religion because religion is something humans invent and religious behavior is something we conjure up. So there's always religion. Often it's con- contradictory to the good news, the gospel. It poses another way. And because of that, because the claim of Christianity is exclusive, that Jesus said, I, Acts 4.12, the disciples said, there's no, not salvation any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That exclusive claim about Jesus causes tension and friction against religion. And so the religious people hearing that Jesus is, you know, their claim is they called it the way. You remember that? We saw it in the text last week. They had already started referring to Christianity as the way. And so persecution occurs. Violent opposition is what Paul immediately begins to experience. And we can see that this religious impulse is deadly. And eventually it causes Saul and many other of the apostles to experience martyrdom, violent death. Paul preaches Jesus and his life is threatened. I wonder for us if our faith ever feels risky. Does your faith ever feel risky to you? Do you ever feel like that the commitment that you have to the gospel puts you in places that make you uncomfortable? I think it's a good question when I read this text for us to think about. Does it ever take us into territory that arouses the hostility of hell? Our journey ever take us places where we think, man, Satan is so unhappy with me right now, with us right now. I think so sometimes. I see it in community. I used to think about that. You know, sometimes when things get really difficult among the family of God, we almost should go, thank you, that's a compliment to us. It's a compliment to us that Satan hates us so much and he sees something worth persecuting among us. Thank you. It's a compliment. Right? That's how we should feel about it. There's something worth persecuting among the kind of faith that we have. One of the real threats of the modern age, I think, is that we can easily play it safe. It's just easier. If the biggest marker of faithfulness to Jesus is whether we mustered the energy to get out of bed on Sunday morning and connect with other Christians, that is a very low bar for for evaluating the effectiveness of our Christianity. It's an important marker. But if we say the way I know I'm a biblical Christian is I rolled out of bed and I came to church, it's a pretty low bar. And, And it's not what we saw 
among those followers of Jesus. I know it's a different world. You've probably never been beaten for your faith. Me either. Had anybody plot to kill you. Had to have your friends say, you know what we'll do for you? We're going to put you in a giant basket. And at night, when they can't see us, we're going to lower you through the city wall. We're going to put you out of door. We're going to send you to Jerusalem. You know, nobody ever had to do that for me. I never had to be part of a plot of other among other people to usher you know, a fellow believer away from a place where it was unsafe to some place that it was safe. So it's a different world for us. But I, I think about that. The point of this passage to me is this, this idea. What they were willing to do versus what we're willing to do. And we think about what's the application to me as a follower of Christ now in, in the affluent West. The early church was united in their urgency to get good news to people. We push back when we're faced with inconvenient expectations. Oh, I don't want to do that. It's not convenient to me. That's the difference between them and us, is that they weren't only willing to be inconvenienced, they were willing to die to give their life for the sake of the gospel. And I know it's challenging a challenging thought but that's what I think we can see from the passage the disciples in Jerusalem had to overcome their fear and reluctance to trust Saul and they found that he was trustworthy and it's understandable and we face the challenges of overcoming our own fear and reluctance ours is different but it's still fear and reluctance the church will never be effective locked behind doors. You know, that's where they were at first with Saul. They're locked behind doors. They're afraid. It's only when they are able to move beyond the, the fear and the reluctance and get outside the walls that they become bold witnesses for Christ. So that's the first part of this, part one is the example that we can see in the life of Paul and, and the other believers. And, but then the second part of it in verse 31 is the church's experience. It instructs us and helps us to think about the hard work of being biblical Christians. What, what did they experience? <clears throat> it's interesting that Craig Keener said the church has peace because God converted the persecutor. You know, they, they do. Verse 31 starts to describe that the relative experience stops being persecution and scattering. And, of course, I think this probably is describing years of events. They're not all included in here, but when you put it all together, including Galatians and other places, you see that this probably describes something that happened over a couple of years. So it stops being that the persecution is so intense right then and it starts being true that because the persecutor, the main person that had been uh, a thorn in the side of believers, became a believer. And so the main impetus, the person that was really um, causing the chaos, becomes part of the Christian movement and a, an apostle, the apostle Paul. So God himself orchestrated circumstances that the uh, allowed the church to be edified so it's like 
there are seasons and there are times in the lives of uh, the Christian movement. They have been through a time of persecution. Now they're in this season of peace when the church can be strengthened and built up, and they needed that. They needed this pause, and God granted that to them in his sovereignty and the way he was moving. I'm encouraged on this front a lot of times that God cares more about everything than I do. I'm glad. I want to care too, but I'm also glad to know God cares more about my kids. I love my kids. I want my kids to walk with Jesus. I'm so glad that God cares more about my kids than me. It takes, I mean, there's pressure we feel, but but God loves and is committed to redemption for people. And God loves the church more than I do. I love this church, and I love the people, and, you know, we invest our lives here, and I study to preach and try to organize and help, and in my own flawed way, I'm so glad God loves this church more than I do. Aren't you glad? He does. He loves this congregation of human beings. And he has a will and a purpose for, for us. But you can see that in this uh, passage that we're studying. He edifies the church. Why? Because he loves it. Because it's his body. And he loves his bride. It's his body. He loves it. He wants it to be healthy. He wants it to be effective. He wants it to make a difference in the world. So he cares about it even more than the other people involved in this narrative do. And he invites us to be part of what he is doing to grow his kingdom. And that's an encouraging thought. You know, that God gifts everybody, every human being that becomes a follower of Jesus and that the Spirit of God comes to take up residence in, he gives spiritual gifts to us. And the Bible says that the job of leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. Why does God give pastors, elders, leaders to congregations? Yeah, to be a servant, to live out their gifts and calling among people, but also to equip the saints for the work of ministry, the Bible says. So what it means is that God is trying to mobilize the church into the world so that it has a missionary footprint all over the place in our communities and families and and neighborhoods, everywhere, that he wants to take your life and my life and mobilize us out into the world with the message that there's good news in Jesus. So he invites us to be part of what he's doing in his kingdom. They walk in the fear of the Lord, verse 31 says, that that's what happened to the church. They were walking in the fear of the Lord, a healthy appraisal of who God is. That's what that is. They think about God appropriately. Reverence. That's Reverence is kind of a lost word. But reverence just means that God influences everything. There's nowhere that we go that the, the thoughts that we have, the correct understanding we have about God doesn't go with us. And it becomes who we are in our personality. They walked in the fear of the Lord. Walked. Wherever they went, it went along with them. This healthy truth about God's great love and God's purposes in Jesus and the the idea that they were a holy community of people, it went wherever they went. 
And they had worship because worship and holiness go along with walking with God in the fear of God. Worship was part of who they were. And I think that's basic. You know, when we think about what it means to follow Jesus, it means that we become worshiping witnesses of Jesus. We worship as a way of life. We give praise to his name. There was humility, there was prayer, because all those things accompanied the idea of the fear of God being present and walking in the fear of God. Humility, prayer, the capacity to say at times I'm wrong, to own it, to seek forgiveness and peace in our relationships. When When we walk in the fear of the Lord, it means we're a people who are influenced by the great weight of who God is the heaviness of his glory that we want to experience among us, the glory of God. They're comforted by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, after so much turmoil. You know how it feels in in your life when you don't have peace, when you go through uh, times in your life that there's upset, turmoil, that they had been living that way for a long time. They had been. I, I'm not saying they didn't have peace, but they didn't have peace in their circumstances. They they had a lot of things that might provoke anxiety, as we can well imagine. The loss of a job. If they had to lose their job because of their faith in in Jesus, then that causes anxiety. If you're if there's distress in your family because Jesus says, "Don't think I came to bring peace. I I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword." And sometimes what's going to happen is there's going to be unevenness in the way you feel. But now the Bible says what's happened is that the Holy Spirit is comforting them after a long season of difficulty. And they're able to rest in God's strength. The book of Nehemiah I thought of when I was thinking about this part of this passage. It says in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And you think about Nehemiah. They came back to Jerusalem at a time when it was uh, just rubble. The walls were down. You remember Nehemiah? Goes, he's exiled. And in exile, he's the cupbearer for a king. And God sovereignly puts him in his position. He's able to ask for help. And he gets a burden, right? That's where it all starts is a burden that this man carries. He's like, the walls are down, burned, the gates are down. The city of God that's a testimony to God is in disarray. And he gets permission from the the king to go back and from the governors along the way to provide what they need. And they get going, right? They're in a project to see God restore his glory in Jerusalem. And they're building these walls up. And what happens almost immediately? Tobiah, Sanballat, these guys become like little chihuahuas. No offense to chihuahuas, but like nipping at their heels and harassing them all the time. And, and I, I love how in Nehemiah, the, the answer that he gives, he says, we're not coming down from the wall. We have... Too much important work to do. You can go on and leave us alone. We're not coming down. We're not stopping, he says. We've got too much important work to do. 
They were in the middle of a comeback story, and they, they were building from the ground up, and they said, we don't have time to come down and deal with your silliness. But they had been harassed, and they needed comfort, and that's where the Scripture says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. I think about that sometimes. It's just nice sometimes for us to be able to separate out the difficulty maybe that just goes along with uh, trying to live for Christ in community and to be able to celebrate among ourselves. Maybe it's just in the songs that we have as we raise up our voices in worship. But I've joked around a little. I want to have fun at church sometimes. Amen? I want it to be joyous. I want to experience God in our midst. If it's us just lifting our voices up, unhindered to God, and just praising God for who he is because he deserves to be worshipped. But we get it that it's hard sometimes. We get it that it introduces conflict sometimes when we're trying to follow Christ and serve him. And again, you know, just acknowledging that people are imperfect trying to follow a perfect God. And sometimes we just need his comfort. Where do we go for comfort? Where's the source of our peace? I like the old hymn, the uh, gospel hymn that says, Where could I go but to the Lord? Needing a friend to, to guide me to the end, where could I go but to the Lord? That's it. The result of God affording them peace and comfort, though, wasn't that they said, oh, you know what we're going to do now? Let's just take a vacation. Let's sit on our hands. No, when you look at verse 31, this passage, it says that they walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and were multiplied. And were multiplied. Because they recognized that the Christian faith is a missionary faith. It's not just for us for us to find comfort in it is that but it's also about the good news that you found and I found about who Jesus is and what he came to do the last thing Jesus said is to make disciples and to baptize believers and we are we have the privilege of announcing good news we sometimes don't have the comfort or ability but we have the privilege of being able to tell people there is good news. Our story is that there's good news. You know, we, we um, are trying, and, and it's been this way for a long time, preceding me, that the way people become members here is by you, you sharing a testimony. You become a member here by sharing a testimony. In other words, we say you have to have a testimony to be a part of this congregation because we believe in born-again church membership. And so part of what we do is teach people to tell their story. That's part of why that's important, to be able to say, here's my story. Because then as you tell your story, you you know how to tell it, and you know how to share it. And it's a part of what our calling is by Jesus, is to be people who bear witness to the difference that he makes. The good news is that Jesus changes and transforms lives and gives us eternal hope. He gives us hope that can never be taken away from us. It can't be taken from us. Because the world, like the old gospel song says again, the world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. 
It's eternal. It's transformational. The first century Christians accepted suffering and discomfort as a pathway of discipleship. They didn't go looking for trouble, but they accepted it as a possibility because walking with Jesus is countercultural. You go against the grain, you get splinters. It takes courage just to live every day, I think. How much more so if the commitment that we have is to be salt and light? If we say, I'm going to wake up and allow God to use my life to have influence for his kingdom and for his glory among the people where he sends me. We said in the beginning our threats are different than those the early Christians faced. And what we need is vigilance not to become indifferent, not to become complacent, not to become so comfortable that we can't be made uncomfortable. We need the reminder that the Scripture says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God that you Make your body, present your bodies, live in sacrifices to God, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, it says. And don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But a living sacrifice is one that gets up every day and does it again, right? Again and again and again, we become a sacrifice. And Jesus said we find our lives by giving them away. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great uh, preacher, the last message he ever gave publicly, part of it said, those who have no masters are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or Savior, he says. And he says, the call on our life from Jesus is take up your cross daily and follow after me. I like what he said here. He says, the heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. Isn't that comforting? The heaviest end of the cross, he says, lies ever on his shoulders. So this doesn't, uh, it's not about guilt. It's about grace. Grace that came to us through Christ. Grace that changes us. Grace that commissions us. Grace that sustains us. I love how John puts it. Grace for every need of grace. And we need grace all the time. We're going to have time of prayer, conclude our service today with an opportunity for a commitment. It may be today that you want to respond as we are standing in a moment to sing. You can come and pray like people used to do as an act of humility. It's fine for you to do that. I'd be happy to pray with you. If there's a way that God is challenging you to respond, we encourage you to to do that maybe it's following Jesus uh, you've never followed him as your master and experienced the forgiveness of sins the Bible says that Jesus came to forgive our sins to pardon us to pay the ransom that that was owed to bring us into relationship with God and it's just uh, our surrender our repentance the Bible says that we're to repent and to turn to God and to do works that give evidence of repentance by faith, grace was saved through faith, and that not of ourselves is a gift of God and not of works, so that none can boast. I'm glad it works that way. It's not about you piling up some impressive resume. 
It's just that God comes to us right where we are and he meets us right where we are and he rescues us right where we are. And, and so maybe today that's the need that you have. I'd be happy to pray with you and help you. But uh, let's pray to God. And um, God, thank you so much for the scripture. Thank you for the word. Thank you for its the way that it shows us your life, shows us what life means. And I pray today, God, that you'll be... Uh, comforting and helpful to us in our as we think about following you and knowing you and I pray today you'll help us if anyone needs to just turn their life completely over to you for forgiveness but help us God that we can be courageous in this world where uh, so many may be indifferent help us not to be that way God we love you we thank you for the great love you've shown us in Jesus and we pray this in his name amen would you stand with me as we sing